Hello and welcome back to the Be Well Together podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Bowen, and I'm the Director of Employee Engagement Programs at Salesforce. In this weekly series, we bring in luminary speakers and well-being experts to provide insights and tips related to all aspects of mental, physical, and social well-being to help you thrive at work and at home. Did you know social integration and strong social ties are the greatest predictors of living a long life? It's true. Particularly during this pandemic, we've seen how crucial it is to stay connected with friends and family and maintain those relationships for your mental health. Joining us today is John Levy, a behavioral scientist, the founder of The Influencers, and author of You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. In this conversation, Jody Koner, our Executive Vice President of Global Enablement at Salesforce, sits down with John as he shares some of his latest research and discusses how to build trust, why traditional networking feels so unnatural, and what type of social interactions actually leave a lasting impression. Enjoy today's conversation with John Levy. So this book is all about building connections and gaining trust and just creating a kinship with others to help foster a sense of community. So today, John is going to share insights on strengthening our mental and emotional well-being by creating meaningful connections. What could be more important than that? So John, welcome to Be Well Together. Jody, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to share all of this with you. And I think you know that much of my life has been spent doing something absolutely ridiculous. I mean, for most of my adult life, I've brought together over 2,000 people, 12 at a time, to cook dinner together. And when they sit down to eat, they're not even allowed to talk about what they do or give their last name. Once seated, they find out they're sitting down with Nobel laureates, Olympic medalists, editors and chiefs, Fortune 500 executives, and even the occasional member of royalty. Now, I want to point out, this has become probably the biggest private community of its kind in the world. But when I started this, I, had, I was completely broke. I didn't have a great job or anything like that. I had no status. And what's absolutely wild is that the only thing I had going for me was a ridiculous obsession with science. So you might be asking yourself, what does any of this have to do with mental health and well-being? And to understand that, as I was researching my latest book, I came across some incredible studies that I think will contextualize a few things for us. The first is that in 1985, the average American had just about three friends besides family. By 2004, we were down to two. Now, that's completely insane. That means in 19 years, we lost 50% of our friends. Now, the tendency is to hear something like this. And what we all like to do is blame social media, right? Oh, we're distracted. We're becoming more isolated. But the fact of the matter is that's probably not what's causing the issue. It's probably because we're all moving so much for work or after college. And each time we end up moving, we reset our social ties. That's completely wild. Now, the tendency is to think, okay, maybe this kind of social isolation is mostly happening for the people who are older, those who are our grandparents and so on. But the research behind it is crazy. It turns out that the younger you are, the greater the tendency to be lonely. 30% of millennials say they're always or often lonely. 
And one-fifth of them state that they have no friends. The stats for Gen Z are even more concerning. Now, the problem with this is that people who have lots of friends tend to be able to make even more friends. You're more social. You're more connected. But if you've gone from having three friends to two friends because you moved or someone moved away, then suddenly the world becomes smaller. And people who are lonely tend to feel they deserve the loneliness and become more isolated. What concerns me is that when we really look at the predictors of human longevity, of the things that we want to accomplish and the things we care about, eating more kale and uh, <laughs> meditating, although really great for you, have nothing to do with living a long time or even succeeding. The greatest predictors of you living a long time are actually strong social ties is number two, meaning having close friends or family that you're connected with. And the number one predictor is social integration, feeling like you are part of a community. I want you to think about this. With all the time we clock in at the gym, all the time we read health tips and try to do everything that's right for our benefit, the thing that'll actually have the biggest difference might be having a conversation with a friend or going to play some games with people. What's even more wild to me is that when we look at business success, a study by Paul J. Zak found that you can track employee sick days, company profitability, and company stock value to the level of oxytocin in people's bloodstreams. Literally, how much they feel bonded to their coworkers and a sense of belonging that they have. Human beings are fundamentally driven by a sense of belonging. And this is continuously backed up by more research. A study done by Google looking at what makes a team successful, you would think maybe it's having a bunch of geniuses from diverse backgrounds or people who are more senior and tenured. But the greatest predictor was actually psychological safety. This idea that your belonging is secured, that you won't be kicked out of a team or a community because you have a descending view. Now, what's wild about this is that this level of anxiety that's produced from loneliness is estimated to be costing the global economy billions of dollars. And it kind of makes sense because when you think about how people feel after a bad breakup, they're completely distracted, they're upset, and they can't focus. But if you also think about, as a society, the greatest punishment we give people, it's putting them in solitary confinement or pushing them out of our society through exile. So I wanted to further understand the impact of this. And I came across some wild research by Professor Matt Lieberman, I believe it's at UCLA. And he created what might be one of the dumbest games known to man. It's called Cyberball. And the way the game works is like this. You come in for the study and they put you in an fMRI to scan your brain. And as they're doing that, they have you play a video game where you are passing a ball with two other people. And you pass it from person one to two to three and so on and so forth. And then eventually something really weird happens. Players two and three, the ones you've been playing with, stop passing you the ball. And as a result, they just pass it back and forth. And you begin to feel completely isolated. And often when people finished the experiment, they'd get out of the fMRI and say, wow, I wonder why they started ignoring me. When Lieberman and his colleagues looked at the brain scans, they saw that the same areas that were active when people feel physical pain were active during social pain. They couldn't tell the difference. 
What's even wilder was they took the experiment one step further. They said, maybe if I gave you a painkiller, it would have an effect. So they came in with two groups. The first group took Tylenol for two weeks to kill pain and participated. And what they found was that the areas associated to pain did not light up. They were not bothered by being ignored. But those who took a placebo still felt that same pain. You see, what's interesting is that it seems that we have to separate out this idea that social pain is somehow different than physical pain. If somebody were to hurt us, they might go to jail for committing a crime against us because they caused pain. But it seems that social pain or emotional pain can be just as damaging. And we're still used to thinking that, okay, if somebody doesn't have a broken leg, they're fine. But one thing has nothing to do with the other. People could be experiencing an incredible level of social pain and we're completely unaware of it. So the question became, what do we actually do about this? And I want to really acknowledge here that mental health and well-being is a really complex field. The treatments, the processes, the aggravators, there are far too many of them for me to address. And I'm also not a medical professional. But over the past several years, as I've been researching, you're invited. And running this community of thousands of people and doing my own research, I've developed an expertise in understanding what allows us to connect with each other, what builds trust, and what creates this sense of belonging that seems to be so essential for us to live a happy and successful life. Let's face facts. After, for many of us now, over 15 months in isolation, I think we could all use a better understanding of these things. So let's kind of dig in here and really understand how to connect, how to build trust, and what it is that we can really do to create more meaningful relationships. So the first thing is that, especially in business and social culture, when people say, oh, I want to meet more people, the first recommendation is networking. And if you're like me, you absolutely hate networking. It's the worst. I mean, it's so bad. A research study from Harvard Business School looked at the emotional relationship that people have to networking. And it literally makes people feel dirty, like they need to wash their hands. The reason I think is that networking makes us feel like we're using people. It's not a natural way to connect. In fact, if we really look at things, people connect in a very different way. We connect over culture, activities, and interests. Yet we rarely focus on that when we want to build relationships, even in the business world. But our best shot of actually developing a relationship with somebody is when we have an overlap in something that matters to us. So rather than going to a networking event, go join a soccer club. Go start an art group in your company. Take people on a hike. Find something that's already going on. If you're introverted, that's fine. It could also be with one other person. You don't have to host large dinner parties like I do. The key is to find something you already enjoy. Because if it's not something you like, then you're not going to want to keep doing it. And if you really want to attract people to participate with you, there's a little tip I can give you. And this is kind of wild. So human beings have a section of the brain called the SNVTA. It's the major novelty center of the brain. And it responds relative to how novel something is and actually entices us to explore and understand it. So if you trigger novelty, it actually gets people to want to participate. It gets them curious. 
They want to engage. So if instead of just saying, okay, we're going on a hike, which is a really lovely activity, if you could add some novelty to it, like everybody should bring one problem they're dealing with at work and we'll talk about it along the way. And as a byproduct, the conversation becomes more interesting. People feel like they're benefiting from it and they connect and they bond further. The key, once again, is to do something you actually care about. That could be knitting, it could be a book club, but remember, people connect over their culture. So if you wanna join and volunteer at a church or a synagogue or a, or a mosque, or you could participate in the sports or activities. Now, this is important. This will get people to notice you, to be on your radar, right? You're in the same activity as them, an art class or whatever it is that you chose to do. But how do we actually build a meaningful relationship with somebody? How do we build trust? Now, in corporate America, the tendency is we'll throw a party and give people a swag bag, or I'll take you out for an expensive dinner. But let's be honest, those dinners feel often like obligations, and we tend to re-gift or throw out those swag bags. So giving somebody something isn't necessarily the best strategy. It turns out that what really works well is the exact opposite. I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but we're going to take a lesson from IKEA. You see, research has shown that people disproportionately care about their IKEA furniture because they had to assemble it. And the reason is that the more effort you put into something, the more you care about it. It's why people love their pets or their kids. It's because all the times that they had to take care of them, help them with their homework or clean up after them, that additional effort actually increased the connection between them. So if you are going to pick an activity, find something that you can do together. At my dinners, we have the guests cook together because it actually causes them to bond. It develops a deeper relationship. So if you go on a hike, you're putting in shared effort and that makes a huge difference. If you're doing volunteer work together, you'll get to know each other better. And it turns out that in general, human beings connect better over shared activities because sitting across the table from somebody feels like an interview, it's awkward. But if you're participating in activity, it feels completely natural. It's how we evolved as a species. So sometimes this is referred to between people as the Ben Franklin effect, because Franklin won over a contentious political rival, not by being nice to him, but by asking to borrow a rare book. And when the man went out of his way to bring it to Franklin, they became friends until the man's passing. Now, here's a little secret pro tip. One, if somebody offers you support, accept. They'll care more about you. I know a lot of you like to do things on your own or you feel like you're not deserving of it. Just say yes, it's okay. The second is, if you are going to ask for favors, it's important to have reciprocity and support back. But the key is to ask in stacking order. And what I mean by that is, there's this wonderful study that was done where people were asked for directions on the street. And if the directions were complex, people wouldn't want to give them. But when they first asked for the time and people stopped and gave it to them, and then were asked for directions, they were then willing to give directions. Which means that if we can get people to put in a small amount of effort into us and then continuously grow it, that will actually cause them to say yes more often, like us and care about us more. Now, I was trying to figure out why this worked. And it turns out that it has to do with a very wonderful characteristic of human beings called vulnerability loops. So I'm going to teach you right now how to build trust very quickly. And the key is that human beings think that trust precedes vulnerability, but it doesn't. 
vulnerability actually precedes trust. And the way it works is like this. So imagine we're sitting next to each other in an office, right? It's post-COVID, everybody's safe, we're vaccinated. And you overhear me say, oh my God, I'm so overwhelmed. Now, if you ignore me or make fun of me, trust will be reduced. But if you acknowledge what I said and put out your own signal of vulnerability, John, my first week, I was totally overwhelmed too. I know how you feel. Let's see how we can figure this out. Now we've both demonstrated that we can trust each other at this higher level. We're safe with each other. We've been vulnerable. And this gives an opportunity for another vulnerability loop. So this means two important things. The first is that if you want to be trusted and develop greater trust with those around you, you want to be on the lookout for when they signal vulnerability. Because if we're ignoring it, then we're missing an opportunity to have deeper and more meaningful relationships. The second is that we have to be willing to be vulnerable. At times, we'll need to be the ones to put out the signal first, which means that from time to time, people will ignore us or make fun of us. And so there's a risk of getting hurt. But what we've seen is that if being lonely is on par with smoking a pack a day of cigarettes, then the risk of not connecting with people is far greater than the risk of getting hurt. So now we know what it takes to connect with people. Let's find an activity that matters to us. Let's make it novel so people are interested. Let's make sure there's the IKEA effect so we can connect deeply. But now we need to take it one step further. The ultimate goal here is to give people a feeling of belonging. And for belonging to happen, what we need to do is not just focus on us knowing people, but them knowing each other. You see, us knowing people, having close connections, that was the second greatest predictor of longevity. But the greatest predictor was social integration, meaning that we are connected to one another. So what does that mean? That means that we need to be brave. We need to be willing to create vulnerability loops, to invite people to not only engage with us, but with each other. And for those of us who are more introverted or shy, it means that we have to be brave and open and close vulnerability loops by accepting invitations to connect. I know right now, we've all been alone for so long that we feel that our muscles have completely atrophied. We don't even know how to hang out with people anymore. We feel uncomfortable. Can we shake hands? Can we hug? What's appropriate? We're filled with doubts. But let me tell you, everybody is. And the real risk is not taking that risk. So if I can encourage you to do anything, anything at all, it would be find something that you actually care about, that you can connect with people over. Have it be something novel. Put in joint effort. Figure out how to get everybody to put in some effort so they care more about each other. And don't just keep those relationships to yourself. Have people connect with each other. Because the more your friends know each other, the stronger the sense of community you'll have and the more everybody will feel like they belong. I know you're probably not gonna take all of my advice. So if you're just gonna do one thing, call up a friend you really care about that you haven't spoken to in a while and catch up. Maybe go take a walk together. It makes a world of difference. Thank you. Wow, that's so interesting. First of all, I'm so delighted that you're here. I think that your research and the focus that you have put into connections, it's such an interesting time. <laughs> right? To be spending and focusing your time there. And, you know, a question that I, I have for you is, you know, we're in a place right now and there's a lot more hope 
there are, at least in America, maybe not all over the globe, but in America, like the vaccines are rolling, people are Mm -hmm. starting to get them, like there's a light at the end of the tunnel here. And I've been in more than one conversations when I've heard people say in the best of possible spirits, but like, I don't want to go back to the way it was, right? Like we've had so much time to really focus on what is most important to us. And we've had to cull our lives down and just really, as things got smaller, find more meaning in Mm -hmm. that. And so I guess I'm curious to hear from you is like things start opening up. There's one, what you mentioned about like that feeling of a muscle atrophy of, I don't even know, you know, how to do this anymore, but what is your advice to people who, as things are starting to open up, they're like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. And that kind of feeling of, well, what does that mean if I'm voluntarily making my world smaller and not building up that network and, you know, that it's it's not what I thought was important isn't really sure. important. So I do want to separate two or three things. The first is there's a difference between being introverted and being shy. You could be incredibly extroverted and very shy, being scared that you're judged for your social actions. And if that's the case, then that's more of just building up a muscle so you can get back out there because it feels scary. People who are introverted might just feel more comfortable with a smaller social circle. But regardless of how introverted you are, everybody needs somebody to some degree, right? There's maybe like five people on the planet who need nobody. The rest of us all need somebody. So my general recommendation is that those things that feel convenient aren't necessarily good for us. Hmm human beings are anti-fragile. Something that's fragile, you drop it, it breaks, right? Anti-fragile, when you put pressure on it, you get better and stronger. So I go to the gym, I lift weights, my muscles get stronger. And when I socialize and spend time around other people, my thinking gets better. I take on new habits. I see the world in new ways. Now you have to pick your own comfort zone for how much of that. But the idea that you probably don't want it at all might just be because we've lived with it for so long. So Mm. it's easy to forget. Right, right, right. Or maybe go back to what you were saying and base it less upon the who and more upon the what. Yeah. And, you know, what are the interests that you really want to pursue now? And maybe, you know, reframe things by an interest first or a culture first, and then see who might. I think that's really great advice. Yeah. For some people, they might find that, you know what, all that time I was spending at, you know, I'm going to give an extreme example, nightclubs. Mm-hmm. I had no meaning there. Yeah, right. You're like, but if I start doing like a classical book club or start participating at a museum as a volunteer, that gives them a huge amount of fulfillment. I'm not here to judge. Do whatever, like you know. Makes right. No, you, I think it's yeah. great though. I think that people like to to look forward and to say, you know, a lot of the things we've been talking about on Be Well Together over the course of the last year has been about who do you want to be on the other side. I love that. And, you know, we're the other side's coming. (laughs) It's near. So I feel like you're invited. Seems like a really important read right now. Tell everyone where we can order this new book and how we get our hands on this. So the book is available everywhere. So Amazon, Barnes and Nobles and anywhere else you can think of, or you can support your local bookshop. So indie books and all that. That's a good idea. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been great. Your research is amazing. I hope one day to find myself at one of your dinner parties 
And uh, to all of our viewers, I would just say thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in. I hope that you are thinking forward and thinking about who you want to be on the other side. And hopefully John's words of wisdom and his book, You're Invited, will be a great guide and companion for you. So with that, everyone, I will say thank you. Uh, Thank you for having me. Yes, for sure. And everyone, just be happy and be healthy and just be well. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Please be sure to leave a rating and review. We also encourage you to share this podcast with friends, family, and anyone you think could use a boost of inspiration. For more Be Well Together goodness, visit salesforce.com slash plus or click the link in our show notes. Check back here again next week for our episode on harnessing the power of humor to bring more happiness to your work and life with Jennifer Ocker and Naomi Begdonis.